Let's pray. God, we give you thanks as we have already been able to today that you are Lord and with a thousand hallelujahs we raise our voice with your church across the world today acknowledging your goodness and your grace, your holiness, your awesome nature, your power, uh, your character which is deep in love and uh, absolutely committed to uh, justice and doing the right thing and so it's you that we worship. We lift your name today above all other names we put our eyes, our focus, our attention squarely on you, Lord, in our worship. But we're mindful that as we worship, we worship alongside brothers and sisters in Christ. And so today too, as we come before you, we come with open hands and open hearts to what you will say. But with open hands and open hearts too, directed towards those who we sit with in worship. Father, we acknowledge today that uh, we are an eclectic bunch of people, a different life experience, different longings, different hopes, different visions, but we ask, Lord, that our collective vision might be on you and that we might truly live a life worthy of the calling that you have placed upon our hearts. And the implications of that, of course, Lord, are that we treat one another in the same manner that you would expect us to, to treat others with deep respect, with love, with concern for their well-being, with encouragement and hope. And so, Father, we do today pray for those that we sit with. We ask that your will would be done in their lives and in their hearts, no matter what their journey, no matter which stage they're at. And we pray too for ourselves, Lord, that you will convict us of times when perhaps we have drifted away from, from your heart, that you would forgive us for the times when we have acted with haste or judged with, uh, with wrong information, that you would restore us when we've listened to voices that have been unhelpful to us, that you would transform us and help us to be more Christ-like as we seek to follow you. Father, we live in a world where there's all sorts of noise and light that draws uh, people away from your kingdom and it's so easy for us to be attracted by things which are not of you, things that masquerade as you perhaps. But Lord, bring us back to that heart of worship today where we might see you, where we might experience you afresh, where we might know your love. Lord, we pray for other things that are happening in our building today, not only for this gathering in the auditorium here, but for our kids' church as they continue with their activities. We thank you for them. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be active mightily in that space. And in the same way too, we pray that your spirit would be active mightily in this space as we hear from your word today. So God, rest upon us, we pray. Strengthen us, help us to hear what you're saying and bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the um, habits that we had with our children when they were young, and it's probably fairly typical of many of you, is reading them bedtime stories. Is that a, a, a family tradition in your household? Good way of kind of winding a child down at the end of the day, you know, steadying things down, and then um, reading, praying, and hopefully the next stage of sleeping. When Josh, my son, was about nine years of old, I was inspired to read through some Bible stories, and I remember a season uh, sitting by his bed reading the book of Judges. 
<laughs> now, you know, at the time I thought it was a good idea <laughs> until I got about this far into the book and then I thought, <coughs> I'm not 100% convinced this is such a good idea. I mean, um, Josh didn't mind. He thought it was fantastic, you know, stories of, of Gideon, for instance, who whose army went from this to this and yet he still was able to take on those Midianites and knock them out and, and Samson who tore apart a line, all sorts of stuff like that. I don't remember whether he remembers the story of Ehud, the guy we're coming to today, this left-handed fellow, but I must, I must say, at the time I was reading this and I was thinking, my goodness, what, what is, uh, is he going to take away from this? And although some of these stories from the book of Judges are very much grist for the mill in our kids' church programs, um, and, and let's be honest, they might delight the macabre inclinations of a nine-year-old boy, this, um, this fascination with armies and swords and all of that sort of stuff. When we come to it in this kind of a context, there's a risk that it grates on our modern sensibilities, isn't there? In fact, I, think, I was thinking about this this morning, one of... Um, one of the challenges that we sometimes face is we tend to take on, and I'm guilty of this too, we take on this idea that we need to be PR experts for God. I have to somehow give an apology for God. In fact, there's a, a, a branch of, of study which is very valuable, apologetics, the ability to uh, articulate the gospel. But perhaps on the negative side of it, we kind of feel like we need to we need to shape God in such a way that he becomes more acceptable for our community. And if we were depending on some of the stories here from the Old Testament to do that, it's embarrassing. Because they don't fit that neat and tidy kind of pattern that we'd like to work with. And so, <coughs> to tell you the truth, we'd rather prefer sometimes to sweep under the carpet stories like the one we're coming to today, which seem, at least on the surface to serve no good purpose in promoting anything likeable about God or his character. And yet as we come to this passage today, I'm reminded of what Paul said in the very familiar uh, passage 2 Timothy 3.16, where he said, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training for righteousness. And if that's the case, then God must have something to say through this passage too. And so, they, though we might come to it uh, with some sense of trepidation uh, and anxiety about what we might find here, let me say from the outset, I do believe that God has a message for us through this passage, as indeed He does from any passage of Scripture, and our task is to listen to what the Spirit might be saying as we come to it. So, let's look at the text. I'm going to read through this. Um, I'm not sure whether we're going to have it up on the screen. Cohen, how do we go? We've got something there looking good. This is from uh, the book of Judges, chapter 3, verses 12 through to 30. And it says this, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did evil, they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab for 18 years. Again the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. 
Now Eglon had made a double-edged sword about 50 centimetres long which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us, and they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull a sword out and the fat closed over it. Eglon got the point. (laughs) Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he'd gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim and the Israelites went down from him, uh, went down with him from the hills with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. Now, what do you do with that that is in some way remotely edifying? Well, the first question that we do need to ask as we come to a passage like that is, what is the theme that runs through it? What is the theme that we find running through that? And if we have a look at verse 15, verse 15 makes the theme clear. Verse 15 says, Again the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. You see, what this story at its very core is about is actually about salvation. You pick that up in the process? It's a story about salvation. In fact, the booming message of this passage that we need to keep our eyes on as we go through it is that God says, see how I delight to save you in the midst of your troubles. And it's a pattern that we see repeated time and time again through the book of Judges. See how I delight to save you in the midst of all your troubles. Now already there's some lights coming on for us in the middle of a dark, dark passage. This is a passage about how God wants to rescue his people, has a desire to rescue his people, to bring his people out of their distress and that message needs to be heard and preached because that message is good news, isn't it? And some of us potentially are in that kind of space even as we speak today in the midst of distress. Because although we live in a very affluent and well-catered for uh, context, there's stuff that goes on in our lives all of the time. We get sucked into sin, we get drawn into 
uh, strife and problems. We experience trouble in relationships or grief because that's the nature of life. Sometimes those things we experience are as a consequence of our own sin, which was true for the Israelites here. Sometimes it's not. But the message of this passage is good news. No, in fact, it's great news because we have a compassionate God who hears our cries and responds to us. He's not a God who stands far off and says, it's over to you now, boys and girls. Just do your stuff. God engages with us. Great news. And what's rather interesting in this passage too, and I don't know whether you've picked this up or not, is that God responded to the cries of his people and not to their repentance. Did you note that? God responded. God actually moved to the cries of his people, not to their repentance. That's interesting. Because it tells us that when it comes to salvation, though repentance is important, and we'll never undersell the importance of repentance, when it comes to the whole process of salvation, who makes the first move? It's God. It's God who does that. It's God who makes that first move. It's God who reaches out first. It's God who gives us the space, if you like, to be able to respond to him. He doesn't wait till we're good enough. He doesn't wait till we've done enough things or till we've ticked the right righteousness boxes. He comes to us in a well-known passage there, and again, I quote one that will be known to many of you, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God made that move even though we were never good enough for it. And that's really significant. Here in this story of Judges, the, the Israelites who've been oppressed by this king for 18 years, don't lose sight of that number, uh, moaning, it says in the Hebrew, under the weight of oppression, who makes the first move? God does. And God always makes the first move. God doesn't wait until we've passed enough tests. And so we need to keep an eye on this as we go through this really tricky passage, that this is a story of salvation. It's a story of God's engagement in salvation. We see uh, again the passage, uh, sorry, the pattern that we've seen and will see again time and time in the book of Judges. Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. God gave them over to Eglon, king of Moab, who oppressed them for 18 years. Who's ever heard of Moab before? It comes up in the scriptures quite often. In fact, I've got a, a little map here I thought I'd show you, which might be just a little bit hard for the people down the back to see, but um, the people on the camera should be able to see that if I hold it up nice and... Can anyone see it? Right, let's not worry about that one then. Let's use some sanctified imagination instead. <coughs> With me here. Up the north, uh, Sea of Galilee, right? Nazareth, that area. Running down through the rift... Uh, the Jordan River, Dead Sea down the bottom. This is a game, all right? Remember that word, game. It's a mnemonic. It's a way of remembering something significant. Up the top here near the Sea of Galilee, if we go to the east, uh, we have the Golan Heights, the G. We come down a little bit, sort of adjacent to the bottom end of the Sea of Galilee, to the east of the Jordan River. We run into the area of the Ammonites. Golan Heights, Ammonites... We cross over the Jabbok River, we come down further to the west of the Jordan, north side of um, the Dead Sea, we run into the area of the Moabites. So, you with me so far? Golan Heights, Ammonites, Moabites, 
Edomites, right down the bottom. Just an easy way of remembering uh, where they kind of fit in terms of where they come from. Moab's, Moab's a, fascinating, uh, a fascinating people, traditionally an enemy of God's people and often used metaphorically through the scriptures to describe the sins of the flesh or sinfulness and partly because Moab's origins essentially uh, came about because of the sins of the flesh. If you have a look at where Moab came, they kind of started as a people um, because of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters, a prime example of flesh not under control. And if you jump into uh, Numbers chapter 25, I think it is, you'll find there the Moabite women seduced the very willing, I might add, the Israelite men into, uh, into sexually oriented worship. And so again, an illustration of the weakness of the flesh. And in this passage, when we come to have a look at uh, Eglon, king of Moab, who we are told was a grossly obese man, what better illustration do we have of flesh not under control than that? This guy who was luxuriously enthroned in the cool upper chamber of his summer house in the city of Palms, his flesh totally out of control, enjoying the tributes being brought to him, the fat of the land, so to speak, which probably added to his own condition. And there's an important spiritual lesson that uh, we ought to just take notice of here too about where it was that Eglon was, uh, was camped, so to speak, or where he was luxuriating. He was in the city of Palms. Does that ring any bells for anyone? No, it's a nickname for a very important city. It's the city of Jericho. Eglon was luxuriating in Jericho. Jericho! What's significant about that? Well, at one level it's significant because it's not all that far from Moab. He's come across the Jordan and there he is in Jericho. But at another level, any Hebrew person hearing this story, this would have just had lights flashing and warning bells sounding everywhere. Jericho, remember what happened in Jericho? Jericho was the first city that the Israelites took and not just by their might, it was an, a, a miraculous, unbelievable taking when they crossed into the promised land. Jericho, the first city that they took. Jericho, the name of the city which struck fear into every other people as they took the promised land. Whoa, we know what happened in Jericho, they would say. Jericho, in some senses, was meant to stand out as a beacon of God's goodness to his people and yet what's happened? Eglon, king of Moab, is sitting in Jericho. Jericho, which was to be the premier illustration, if you like, of God's promise to his people in taking the land, is now under enemy hands. The victory has been taken back by the enemy. And so in this theme of salvation that runs through uh, this passage, that God uh, is uh, willing and desires to rescue his people, is also an important warning as well. And one that we can, I think, quite appropriately appropriate into our own situation, and that is this. When we come to God in repentance and experience his gift of salvation, he gives us freedom in so many areas. And yet it is so easy to allow the enemy to sneak back and retake some of those Jerichos. Does that make sense? 
God gives us liberation, freedom, victory. We talk about all of those things and it might be uh, victory over attitudes or addictions, uh, victory in relationship, victory in thought patterns, whatever it might be. And we celebrate that is good. I'm just so pleased. I'm living in the Spirit and Paul encourages us to do that. And unless we keep on doing that faithfully, the enemy who prowls around looking for loopholes, no, that's not the right word, footholds, uh, will find a place and will retake those Jericho's. If we don't keep the flesh under control, and what Paul talks about there in Galatians 5, or more broadly, our sinful nature by living in the Spirit, those areas where we've had victory can become problems for us. I don't know about you, but over the years, I've known people who have appeared to be going strong in the things of God and then when I've met them years later they've drifted right away, it's all gone. What's happened? Well, more often than not, the desires of the flesh have taken over. Now we say the desires of the flesh, we immediately think about sexual immorality and Paul talks about that in Galatians chapter 5 but he talks about other things too. The sinful nature longs for things that drive us towards idolatry, the process of holding other things higher than God. The sinful nature tempts us towards discord in speaking or thinking about other people in ungodly ways. How Satan loves it when he can sow discord amongst the people of God. In the same passage there in Galatians 5, Paul speaks about jealousy. Wow, jealousy. We all know about jealousy, don't we? That which Satan would love to nourish when we see things that others have or others are treated in a way that we wish we were being treated. Or anger, which can so easily swell up from a sense of injustice or dissension that I've already talked about, sharpened by our, our tendency to be drawn towards people of like views and sometimes we can fertilise those in a context that brings us into conflict with others. Factions, where we gather people around us of like mind. Dare I speak about, and Paul speaks about this, alcohol. Churches, well, the pastors have gone curiously silent on this topic because we live in a context where it's so widely accepted and yet Paul talks about drunkenness as one of those areas where the flesh can gain ascendancy in our lives. And any of those things can become Jericho's for us, areas where we've had victory but areas that Satan would just love to sneak in and take that victory away. And so we are in a constant spiritual battle, living uh, and only by living in submission to the Spirit do we have any hope of having victory in those places. There's probably not a lot to be gained for us by rehearsing the treachery of Ehud. Uh, some of you found <laughs> reading this through somewhat confronting and I understand that he was a left-handed man which is interesting in fact um, in the original language is actually worth making this point in the original language it talks about he it's a little bit ambiguous but it talks about he was bound in the right hand now what that would suggest is that he was not naturally a left-hander like some are but that he had some sort of uh, physical incapacity in his right hand and so he wasn't able to use it in the way that he might otherwise use it which normally in a culture like that would have been very disadvantageous because pretty much all of the military equipment was designed for the right hand and in fact many military fortifications 
were designed in the expectation that they would be attacked by people who were right-handed and so they would design their tunnels and their um, defences accordingly. But Ehud was a left-hander and it might have been, as I say, because he struggled with some kind of disability in his right hand, we don't know for sure. The scriptures, interestingly enough though, have a lot to say about right-handedness and not to, uh, please don't understand this as any way a criticism of anyone who's left-handed here, uh, but talks a lot about the strength of God's right hand, uh, it talks about, you know, sitting at God's right hand, but here in this story, who did God choose as his saviour, as the one who would bring salvation, but a left-hander, someone who was perhaps a little bit unusual, typically rejected by his society, perhaps considered by most as even being ineffective. Tells us there in the scripture that he took a tribute to Ehud, most probably a gift of the produce of the land, because clearly Eglon was luxuriating in that abundance. In fact, if you come right to the end of the passage, verse 29, it tells us that the Moabites were all vigorous and strong, they were stout, in other words, they were well fed in contrast to the Israelites who had been forced up into the hills, who were probably lean, mean and hungry through these 18 years. Ehud had designed himself a double-edged sword. Now, please don't jump straight into the New Testament, think about, you know, the word of the Lord and all that stuff, there's probably not a link there. Uh, but it was concealed on his right-hand side, the guards would not normally expect a sword to be concealed on that particular side. Uh, they didn't see him as a threat, Ehud presented his tribute, uh, he left, travelled a short distance up to Gilgal, that's only a few kilometres, then came back with a secret message of the king and you can see here Eglon was not only a very um, worldly man, as in wider at the equator than he was at the poles, but he was also a very curious man. And when Ehud said to him, I have a secret message, Eglon was drawn right in and he dismissed his guards, out you go, this is a secret message and because um, he had, had couched this as a message from the Lord, Eglon, as, uh, as he would normally have done, lifted himself out of his chair because you would normally receive a message from a god or the gods in the standing position and you know what happened. <coughs> and the NIV is actually very circumspect in telling us uh, what happened in this space, the language has been softened quite a bit. But, um, well, I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> you, can, you can check this out. Just understand, it was a very unpleasant situation. And it'd be really easy to laugh at the humour and the irony that there is in this passage, and partly the way it's written encourages that. It'd be easy to kind of laugh at the ridiculous ease with which Ehud disposed of Eglon and then Israel dealt with his army but we need to be careful uh, because as I said earlier there's a number there that's significant. Eglon had been doing this for 18 years and so the question that we've got to ask is what on earth has Israel been doing for 18 years? Why has it taken this long to cry out to God? Why has it taken 18 years to get to the point where you've realised your circumstances are such that you can't do it yourself? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Why 18 years? And the real tragedy of this story is not 
the gruesome death of this pagan king, but the fact that God's people lived in spiritual mediocrity for so long. They prepared to put up with this for such a long time. There's a warning there too, surely deserving of some reflection, especially in our times, uh, but we're not going to do that today. Because I think it's worth, in the context of this passage, finishing with something encouraging, something a little more positive in what really is an untidy passage of Scripture. The passage is about God's desire to bring salvation. And in many respects, Ehud was a very surprising saviour. The Hebrews who read this passage in years hence would have said, wow, you know, that's unusual that God would use a person like that. He comes out of nowhere as far as the story goes. We know nothing really of his family, of his legacy. Uh, we don't know much of what, uh, what happened other than the land had peace for 80 years. We don't know whether he uh, became father to others. Very little that we know about him. But God chose him to bring salvation to his people. And in the same way that this story is a description of the character of God who initiates salvation and teaches, it, teaches us about how God saves, it also points us to perhaps the most left-handed saviour of all, Jesus Christ. Have you thought about the parallels here? No one saw Ehud coming. And in the same way, no one really saw Jesus coming. For when Jesus was born, he was born to parents of no consequence as far as society was concerned. A teenage girl who, by all accounts, fell pregnant, as happens sometimes. Uh, a young man who was a carpenter, a, a guy who was very ordinary in many respects. A baby who was born in a region largely despised by the rest of the nation, in a village away from the bright lights of the city, in circumstances that could hardly be described as glamorous. The scripture tells us, and, and this you'll find in the Old Testament, there's nothing about Jesus that made him attractive physically, nothing that drew people to him. And in fact, he was ultimately despised and rejected by the people that he came to save. Unlike the judges that we meet in the book of Judges, he didn't use deception like Ehud, he didn't need assistance like Deborah or Barak, he didn't display uh, selfish ambition like Gideon or rashness like Jephthah or sexual weakness like Samson. Jesus was flawless, without sin, totally unlike anyone else before him. And even those who he lived among didn't recognise him as saviour. His own family thought he was crazy. The authorities who put him on trial couldn't find any grounds to convict him other than uh, their own law and yet he delivered his greatest triumph what looked like a moment of crushing defeat you don't get more left-handed than that do you totally left-handed or as we might say in our culture totally out of left field and as we continue through these historical narratives of the book of judges one of the things that we're going to see continually is god showing us that his salvation comes in ways that we may not expect it comes to those who we might think are least deserving. It comes to us. It ultimately comes through a saviour who was very much an outsider, born in a manger. 
It comes through weakness, not what the world calls strength. It comes through defeat, not what the world calls victory. It comes through folly, as Paul says, not what the world calls wisdom. And we're called, as we reflect on Jesus, not to make the mistake that Eglon did as he looked at God's chosen deliver, deliverer and consider him as someone of no consequence, because that would be a big mistake. For in Jesus we look upon the Christ, God's chosen Saviour, and in him we see the power of God and the wisdom of God and the salvation of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again today that even through this difficult passage, the invitation is for us again to gaze upon Jesus, perhaps the most left-field saviour we could have conceived or have imagined. And yet through history you have been, and you were sowing the patterns, you were orchestrating the events, you were weaving into history preparation, signs, messages, that you are working out your perfect will in Christ. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that you are a God who saves, you're a God who's committed to salvation, you're a God who makes the first move, you're the God who sees us in our distress and reaches out to us. And Lord, we pray this morning that wherever we might be found on that continuum today, that we in turn might open our hearts afresh to you. And in the midst of all of the struggles that we've had in trying to be good enough, in trying to be acceptable, in trying to work out our lives, in trying to figure out this untidiness that we have to live with, help us to put all that aside and just accept your love and grace and goodness, we pray. And allow you to be God and surrender our desire to be God. Allow your goodness to fill us, to overwhelm us, and renew us. Lord Jesus, it's you that we worship today. You are the one who saves and we declare that to the nations. For that is the good news that we carry, that you, Jesus, are Saviour. We honour and worship you now. Amen.